From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Normally, we think of bacteria as something bad that we should avoid, but it turns out the bacteria inside your gut can play an important role in keeping you healthy. Researchers at Mayo Clinic are studying the way our gut microbes influence health and disease. On today's program, we'll learn more from a Mayo Clinic expert. We are now realizing that the differences that individuals have in response to food or other components, microbiome plays a role in that. If you know a person's microbiome, you can develop an algorithm to predict how they would respond to individual food components in terms of change in their blood glucose. Also, what you need to know about bats and rabies. And the latest information on the vaping crisis. All that, along with a health minute from Vivian Williams, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, thanks to the invention of the microscope centuries ago, we're now able to understand, or we were able to understand, how bacteria can cause and transmit infections in people. But now we're figuring out that communities of bacteria inside our bodies, known as the human microbiome, actually (laughs) help us and keep us healthy. And when that normal population of bacteria is disrupted, for whatever reason, it can lead to serious health problems. At Mayo Clinic, physicians and researchers are busy studying the relationship between the microbiome and health and disease. And joining us in studio is the co-director of the Mayo Clinic Center for Individualized Medicine Microbiome Program, Dr. Perna Kashyap. Welcome back to the program. It's good to see you again. Thank you. I'm glad to be back. Dr. Kashyap, nice to have you. Uh, so tell us, when did we figure out that there were that our, bacteri- our bodies were full of bacteria? I think we've always known that our bodies are full of bacteria. The challenge was we didn't know how to study them because we had to rely on culturing, and we can culture only a very small fraction of the bacteria. So and by culture, you mean that you take a swab or a specimen and you put it on a petri dish and it grows bacteria? Exactly. So, so very small number of bacteria are amenable to that kind of identification where we can just take a swab and put them on a petri dish and, and they'll grow. So as a result, we always thought that we can't figure out what other bacteria are there till the DNA technology hit the roof and we now can sequence everything. So we don't need to take swabs and grow them on petri dishes. So your your website says that there are 10 times more microbes than in our body than we have cells. So when you say microbes, most of them are bacteria, but what are the others? So you have fungi, you have bacteriophages, you have viruses. So there's multiple microorganisms that exist, and they exist in, in sort of a harmony. And in terms of the number of bacteria, I think that thought has changed. It's not really that important whether it's 10 times the number of bacteria that are present or, or, or you know, five times. But what's more relevant is that these bacteria perform important metabolic functions, which are equally important as to what we do. So they, you have to consider the body as a whole of what we do as well as what these microbes are doing at any given time. They're on us, in us, everywhere? Every orifice? Every orifice. (laughs) And the skin? And the skin. It seems like the one that is most of most interest, though, is the one that is in the gut. That is true. That's the best uh, studied because... uh, as you know, all diseases start in the gut, so I'm a gastroenterologist, so I have to believe that. Uh, but, uh, but yes, the gut microbiome has been the one which has been best studied because the gut microbes have been shown 
one, it was the easiest place to sample, uh, and two, it's been associated with with diseases not only within the GI tract but also outside the GI tract, like rheumatoid arthritis or Parkinson's or other neurological diseases. So, so these associations have put an interest in these gut microbes. And what do these gut mi- microbes do that's good for us? The gut microbes are essentially breaking down things that we are incapable of breaking down. So when you eat an apple, you'll break down part of that apple, and the rest which goes down into your colon, the bacteria feed on that. And in that process, they're going to produce substances which are good for the health of your colon cells, and they also provide a source of energy. So so a small part of the calories that we get are because the bacteria are able to utilize what we cannot utilize. So what, what keeps them from growing out of control? So... Like I said, in, in, in homeostasis or in, in, a, in a harmonious uh, situation, they are, are kept in bay in terms of the number and, and what they're doing is by, by the host. So, but, you know, we uh, have an immune system which keeps everything in check. So it's almost a bi-directional relationship where the microbes will direct what the host should do, but the host will also direct to some extent what the microbes should do. And so, as you can imagine, it's in neither's best interest to try to overextend unless the conditions are right for that. Except for, that's fine, the microbiome knows that and they're following the rules, but we are not following the rules by what we put in our mouth or the antibiotics that we take, etc. Yeah, so, you know, we just have to come to the realization that everything that we do not only affects us, but also affects the bacteria. What we eat is what the bacteria eat what you take in terms of antibiotics or medications, it's going to have an effect on the bacteria. And and sometimes you do need them. I mean, you know, it's not that uh, people shouldn't be taking antibiotics. They are needed. They're used to treat serious conditions, and, and they're indicated. But, yes, the everything that we do can have an effect on the bacteria in our gut. But they're not that fragile. They will recover pretty quickly back to their original state. So you have to really beat them down to move them away. It's mm-hmm. not that you just, you know do a small thing and they'll just go out of whack. So what beats them down? So if you had to take recurrent courses of antibiotics, let's say, you know, you took one and then a month later you had to take another one and then a month later you had to take another one, and sometimes people have to. That will take a toll on the bacteria because now, before they can recover back to their original position, you've sort of hit them again and hit them again. Uh, You travel. If you travel a lot and, you know, you're not, you're changing your habits every day, that can affect what the bacteria look like. So there's plenty of things which can in the long run, but uh, also there are diseases which can affect the bacteria. So when the intestine is inflamed, that's going to drive a certain kind of bacteria which can survive well in that inflammation and maybe perpetuate it. And so what happens when you kill too many of the good guys and they can't recover? So one of the dangers is when you take too many of the good guys down, the opportunists can now come in. They were kept at bay because these good guys cooperated with each other and did not allow any openings to exist. But as soon as you kill a few of these good guys, there's a web which now breaks down. And as soon as you break down that web, you have a lot of different nutrients which are now available to an opportunist. And so C. difficile or Clostridium difficile is one such example, which you hear all the time in the hospital. It's one of the most common condition uh, in terms of infections which gets transmitted in hospitals and that's an opportunist. It's always present around us but it cannot do us harm till the microbiome is disrupted to an extent that it cannot drive it away. Clostridium difficile. C. difficile infection and most of those infections are acquired in the hospital. Well, 
Not entirely true because we are learning that nearly 30% or more may be in the community without being in the hospital. So it's not just in the hospital, but yes, hospital transmission has been one of the big ways by which C. difficile has been transmitted, but that's not the only way you get it. Is there a link between what's happening with our microbiome and things like gluten sensitivity or IBS or food allergies? Are those things linked we we definitely think so. Um, so one thing the bacteria does is it it trains or uh, helps our immune system develop, and and that happens fairly early in childhood. Uh, and when that happens, it sort of programs the immune system. And what people are trying to figure out is if that programming goes awry, what happens when you grow up? Could you develop allergies? Could you develop uh, you know uh, sensitivities or autoimmune conditions? It's still in the research realm. But the reason we think that it has a role to play is because there are certain kind of bacteria which can drive immune responses in one direction or the other, which tells you that clearly there is uh, uh, a symphony which goes on early on, and that's why there is so much interest in early life microbiome in terms of what you acquire at birth, what's the effect of uh, feeding, what's the effect of the environment, because that's the most vulnerable stage when the microbiome is developing. Is there anything to go along with the fact, to, to flip it the other way, that like our grandparents used to say, the problem with you kids today is that you're not getting dirty enough, that you're too clean. And when you talk about um, the microbiome having something that has to, it has to kind of wrestle with, it kind of makes me think my grandpa might have been right. Well, there's definitely the hygiene hypothesis, and that's how, you know, this idea that allergic conditions are more prevalent in the West as compared to the East came by. And, you know, there might be, there likely is some truth to that. It doesn't mean that everybody should be rolling around in dust, but, uh, you know, uh, maybe the dust at that time was much cleaner than what it is right now, and maybe it was full of good bacteria. So I don't think, uh, you know, un wanted exposure is a good idea, but but definitely there's some truth to that. You know, you need bacteria to help train your immune system. Our guest is the co-director of the microbiome program at Mayo Clinic, Dr. Perna Kashyap. Time for a short break. When we come back, we'll talk more about the human biome, plus we'll cover pro, uh, probiotics. Yeah, a lot of people are taking them. Are they really doing them any good? And we'll learn about a study that finds that an individualized diet is best for controlling blood sugar. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCrae. Our guest is the co-director of the Microbiome Program of Mayo Clinic, Dr. Perna Kashyap. We've been talking about the human biome and how important it is in keeping us uh, healthy. We've talked about the gut microbiome. Uh, tell us what else you're studying in your lab that you're particularly interested in. So the microbiome program at Mayo is unique in that its its goal is to be able to bring microbiome science to the practice, to see how we can change clinical practice based on what we learn about the microbiome. And one of the areas that we are focused on is cancer. As you know, cancer is important not only in terms of how cancer develops, but also how we treat cancer. And we're now learning that bacteria can not only dictate in how people may develop cancer, but also how they respond to chemotherapy. If they develop side effects from chemotherapy, how effective a chemotherapy regimen may be. So we've always underestimated the role microbes can play in individualized responses of why some people do really well 
with the treatment and some people do not. And one of the components which we had been missing, I think, is the microbes, and, and we need to start paying attention. So, How are they affected by chemotherapy? So the, the chemotherapy, depending on what kind of chemotherapy, can cause the microbiome to get disrupted. But more importantly, the microbes have similar enzymes as what our body carries, which means that they can detoxify or retoxify drugs that we take, which means if our body detoxified a drug and it enters the GI tract, now the bacteria can convert it back into an active component and cause diarrhea. And that's very common in some of the chemotherapy regimens, and it's shown that people who have higher amounts of certain bacterial enzymes can get diarrhea with chemotherapy. What, what do you hope to learn that can actually be of clinical application for cancer patients? So what we hope to be able to do is be able to stratify the right treatment for the right patient. So right now what we do is we give everybody a regimen and see how they do and who develops side effects and then decide, okay, we should switch. But if we can a priori develop a strategy where say that because of your genetics and your microbiome, you're less likely to respond to this or you're more likely to get a... Uh, side effects, then, you know, we can optimize treatment very well for patients and, and save them this trouble of going through sequential treatments till we find the best fit for them. And that, I think, leads into the study that you did about controlling glucose levels in patients who have diabetes. You learned that somehow the microbiome had an influence on that, and that an individualized diet was best for controlling blood glucose. What do you mean by individualized diet, and how do you study someone's microbiome? So studying the microbiome depends on the site that you want to study. And so for the gut microbiome, the, the best sample to take is the stool. Uh, that's what we use, and you can break it down into its DNA and then just sequence the DNA. We don't need to put anything on a Petri dish anymore. And once we put it, get the DNA and we sequence it, we can then determine what kind of bacteria are present in somebody's gut. Now, everybody carries a unique microbiome, which means that my bacteria would look very different from yours doesn't mean they're all doing different things. They may be doing the same thing, but they don't all look the same, which means that multiple bacteria can do the same thing. Uh, when we talk about individualized diets, all it means is that we are now realizing that the differences that individuals have in response to food or other components, uh, microbiome plays a role in that. And this study was first, uh, it had its origins in Israel when a group of researchers first looked at a group of Israeli um, individuals and found that if you know a person's microbiome, you can develop an algorithm to predict how they would respond to individual food components in terms of change in their blood glucose. Hmm. What we did was we needed to make sure that the similar strategy would work in Americans. And so here at Mayo Clinic, we worked with the company as well as our researchers and tried to validate that study in the American population. And we found exactly the same, that if you have information about an individual's microbiome, we can predict how an individual's blood glucose would change in response to different food items and not food groups. And the idea with individualized diets is right now we know that low-carbohydrate diet, for example, is good to bring your blood glucose down, but it's also very hard to follow. You can't just cut down everything that you eat, and this strategy allows you to pick and choose the good and the bad components within those. So you can tell them exactly what to eat and what not to eat we can for tell a particular them, individual. We can tell them what they probably should eat and should not eat. We can't <laughs> tell them what to do, but yeah, we can we can suggest uh, what they what they can eat. And the idea is to stay within what 
food they normally eat and try to tell them what's best within that to be able to eat because we feel that's one way of ensuring that people will do it because otherwise diets tend to be hard to follow i think the thing that has stuck with me ever since we first started talking about this and i've interviewed you a couple of times is that my microbiome has a different genetic makeup than i do and since my microbiome only lives in me i can't figure out how that can be how can that be so uh, you know uh, uh, the the you really ask difficult questions <laughs> i'm telling you i think about it a lot how can that be no so i mean you know it, the the kind of bacteria that live within us are not just dictated by one thing you know it depends on what you eat what your environment was when you were growing up and what the environment is right now if you're exposed to pets if you you know are used to certain lifestyle habits like smoking so all of those can dictate which would stay well so it's almost think of it how we used to think of survival of the fittest so if you throw a group of 100 bacteria based on everything you do to them a few of them will survive and those are the ones which can exist in that environment so you're not just an individual who has certain genes okay you're also an individual who does things mm-hmm. and all of those affect the microbiome mm-hmm. and the reason microbiome is interesting is unlike your genes we can affect and change in the microbiome but we can't change the genes that we were born with is my microbiome like the cells of your body you know like how uh, your cells will age and thus change over time does your microbiome age yeah well it divides pretty quickly so it doesn't have the lifespan of what human cells are mm-hmm. so you know humans are a completely different kingdom um so the bacteria are much smaller and uh, much smaller than the, even the cells, and and their lifespan is short, and they perform the function, but they multiply very rapidly. All right, probiotics. What are they, and is there anyone who should be taking them? <laughs> That's a loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> so probiotics essentially means live organisms with a beneficial effect on the host. So that's how we typically define them, that they're live bacteria which have some known benefit to human beings. Um, should we be taking them again based on the studies that we have there is very little evidence to suggest the use of probiotics in adults we don't have good data to say that oh x individual should take this probiotic and it will either make them healthier in the long run because how do you measure health or say that you will recover from this disease because we don't have the data for that so as a result no probiotic is fda approved for that reason right and so they may have a beneficial effect on us which is difficult to measure but since we can't measure it we can't tell people that you should take them all right a questionable benefit at best yeah all right the human microbiome we are all full of bacteria and they actually keep us healthy and you and i should compare microbiome someday <laughs> yeah, we'll get on that. and when this population of bacteria is disrupted for whatever reason it can cause serious health problems in the mayo clinic microbiome program questions about the relationship between the microbiome and health and disease are being studied and what they're finding absolutely fascinating our thanks to the co-director of the Mayo Clinic Microbiome Program, Dr. Perna Kashyap. Thanks Thank for joining us. Thank you for having me. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, what you need to know about bats and rabies. And we'll get an update on the vaping crisis. Coming up, a health minute with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. 
Carpal tunnel syndrome is a condition that creates numbness and tingling in your palm from the thumb to your ring fingers. It happens when a nerve on the palm side of the hand is compressed or irritated in some way. Often, a combination of risk factors contributes to the development of the condition, which tends to create initial symptoms at night. Now, several treatment options are available to relieve tingling and numbness and restore wrist and hand function. A pathway within the structure of the palm side of the hand creates the problem. There's a structure there called the carpal tunnel ligament, says orthopedic surgeon Dr. Sanj Kakar, and another one called the median nerve. Carpal tunnel syndrome is simply pressure on that nerve. A majority of the times, doctors don't know why, but sometimes it can be due to a mass or thickening of the tissues in the carpal canal. Dr. Kakar says if symptoms are ignored, carpal tunnel can lead to difficulties doing normal tasks because your fingers can get clumsy. For some patients, wearing a wrist brace at night can ease symptoms. A steroid injection may help, although the effect can wear off over time. And the next step is a short surgery to open the tunnel and relieve the pressure. The actual procedure takes about five to ten minutes, explains Dr. Kakar, and it's amazing the number of times he sees patients who say, I didn't realize that's all it took. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, rabies. We're going to talk about rabies. It is caused by a virus, and it's fatal, but it is preventable. It can spread to people and pets if they are bitten by a rabid animal. And there have been multiple cases of people being bitten by rabid bats right here in the United States this year. What should you do if you are bitten by a bat or scratched by a bat? And what can you do to bat-proof your house? Joining us in studio to talk about rabies and bats is Mayo Clinic pediatrician Dr. Robert uh, Jacobson. Welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. I'm sorry for that terrifying back picture that's behind you. People who are watching on YouTube, I turned around and saw it and just about spit out my water. It it does strike fear into people's hearts, and it adds to the anxiety regarding bats. Uh, Up until the 1940s, almost all the cases in the United States of rabies in humans were transmitted by dogs. Leash laws and other laws, as well as the expectation that dog owners vaccinate their dogs against rabies, has completely changed that. And rabid dogs are not the major vector. In fact, uh, most animals with rabies in the United States are wild, raccoons, foxes, skunks. Um, But most of our exposures to humans are actually in the form of bats. Uh, And there are things that we need to be aware of with bats. And one of the most concerning things is bat bites won't wake you up. Bat bites won't leave a mark. And so uh, we take very seriously when an adult reports they woke up in a room with a bat. We say we need to capture that bat and test the bat. And if we can't, we need to start the rabies series to prevent you from getting rabies. Is it true that it's a scratch or a bite? Well, it's actually the saliva from the bite that gets into your bloodstream that causes rabies. And frankly, going into a cave where bats used to be or touching a cage that used to hold a bat isn't going to give you rabies. Bat urine won't transmit it, but we can't tell looking at a skin, whether it's a scratch or a bite. In fact, there's usually no mark. And when a bat hits you, we won't know if you were bit. That means that any physical contact with a bat like that, where you're walking out in twilight and you're hit in the face by a bat, we have to treat you as though you might have been bit. 
Now, do bats want to bite you? No, they want to avoid us. We think that a bat that stays in your room while you're sleeping is probably ill. And that's why we are very suspicious of a, a bat that you wake up with in your room. That's a very unusual behavior for a bat to stay in your room while you're in there. So we, we take very seriously that we should test that bat. And about two or three percent of these bats test positive for rabies. Now, if you can't get the bat or if the bat can't be tested, then we start the series to prevent what is otherwise a fatal disease. How do you catch the bat? Well, the best way to catch it is in a way that leaves you protected from being bitten during the process and uh, allows you to take the bat safely to the state veterinarian for testing. So we recommend that you take something like an ice cream bucket or a salad bowl and you put it over the body of the bat as the bat is sitting on the wall or on the floor and then slide a piece of cardboard underneath it. Now, it's best done with heavy gloves on because, again, you don't want to end up coming in contact with uh, the bat directly. And then getting a, a lid on the jar or a lid on the bucket. Now, you can pay your veterinarian to have it go up to the uh, the state veterinarian or you can bring it up yourself. But across the country, every state has worked out a system for how you manage getting bats tested. Getting the bat tested will take days, but you have days. In fact, we, we say that you have up to 10 days before we can start the series that we can get the tested, testing done. And usually it's done in one or two business days. Well, I've used a tennis racket to get rid of a bat, <laughs> but I like your technique better. Unfortunately, with the tennis racket, you might shoo the bat out of the house, but then you got to start the series. Um, or you might, Ooh. as I recently had one of my parents uh, do with a shovel, crush the bat uh, and make the bat untestable. And again, you have to start the series then. And it's not just sleeping adults. A young child or an adult who's medicated, inebriated, or otherwise too ill to notice whether they were bit by a bat or too un- or unable to communicate, those people also need to start the series. We were told, you know, one of the things, because you couldn't be afraid enough of a rabid dog, but you'd have to get shots in your stomach. Exactly. Uh, I was told to, the same to thing. try to make you even more afraid, like yeah. it was a problem. Is that how it happens when you need a rabies series? It is so much better than it used to be. We're talking about a highly purified vaccine. We have two of them in this country. Both are, are very purified, very safe, and very effective. Um, uh, we've been using them in this country since the mid 1980s. Um, in fact, we learned over the last 30, 40 years, you only need four of the doses, not five. So if anything, it's not the 20 or 14 doses people grew up hearing. And in fact, it's no longer five. For most of us who, have, who are immune competent, we just need four doses. But we also need a special immunization that's not a vaccine. It gives us antibodies called rabies immune globulin. And we get that if we had a bite, infiltrated directly into the bite. If there isn't a bite, put someplace else in our body on the first day when we're starting the vaccine series. So for most of us, it'll be five 
things. There'll be four rabies vaccines done over 14 days, and there'll be one dose of immune globulin. What about the tetanus booster can keep you safe, you know, for up to 10 years at a time? Is there a rabies booster? Well, there are for people who are, are occasionally at risk or persistently at risk. Let's say that you're a veterinarian. Mm. You're dealing with occasional stray dogs brought in to be adopted, or you're dealing with a dog that is behaving ill. You do need to get a preventative series of rabies vaccine and then every so often be tested to see if you need a booster. And um, uh, with testing, uh, for those that occasionally are persistently at risk, we can determine when you need a booster. Um, and uh, that's not for most of us. For most of us, we just need it when we've been exposed. Uh, travelers sometimes will need it when they're going away. If they're going spelunking someplace uh, in another part of the world, uh, they might very well need uh, to get a preventive series of rabies vaccines. And, and certainly your pets need to be vaccinated, including indoor cats, right? Yes, this is important. We manage to dramatically reduce rabies in our dogs and cats by vaccinating our pets. It's not just protecting the pet against rabies. It's protecting the pet owner. And um, as much as you want that cat to be an indoor cat, uh, there might be the accidental uh, escape that leads you to have a cat that's been outdoors. And you don't want to leave your cat at risk. You don't want to leave yourself at risk. All right. You know, there are bats with rabies in the United States in several cases of humans being bitten by rabid bats this year. Rabies is caused by a virus. It affects the nervous system and it is fatal. And But it is preventable. If you've been bitten or think you've been bitten, talk to your doctor or go to your health department website. Is that correct? Yes. Our thanks to Mayo Clinic pediatrician, Dr. Robert Jacobson. Thank you very much for having me. When we come back, we'll get an update from a Mayo Clinic expert on the recent deaths from vaping. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. The number of vaping-related illnesses in the U.S. continues to rise, now reaching about 1,300 cases and at least 26 deaths. The outbreak appears to have started in March and now has a name, Evale, a new name. Symptoms include severe shortness of breath, fatigue, and chest pain. What do we know about it and what might be the cause? And if you're vaping, should you stop? Joining us by telephone from the Mayo Clinic in Arizona is the Division Chair of Pulmonology and Critical Care, Dr. Karen Swanson. Welcome to our program, Dr. Swanson. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Swanson, I want to ask you, it seems like people have been vaping for years and all of a sudden people are getting sick, people are dying. What's changed? Well, I think in this current really public health crisis that we're having, one thing that's changed is some of the vaping products related to THC, which is the psychoactive ingredient in marijuana. Uh, this is accounting for most of these cases of EVALI, which, as you mentioned, is the new name for vaping-associated lung injury, and that stands for e-cigarette or vaping product use-associated lung injury. So it's not just vaping, but it can also be e-cigarettes. The majority of these cases have been due to vaping THC, but not all. So we really don't understand the underlying pathology or bad ingredients that might be causing this lung injury at this point. And are most of the people who are being diagnosed with e uh teenagers? 
Well, that's a really good question. Uh, we've had the opportunity recently to publish a pathology paper in the New England Journal of Medicine just a week or so ago, and this included 17 patients who actually had lung biopsies that were related to what clinically was felt to be EVALI, and the median age in that group was 35, and so in the published literature so far, many of these cases are in younger adults much less, much more unusual than what we saw in the past with smoking-related lung injury, for example. And we, are, we do know that teens are vaping. We do know that something like 20% of all high school students have tried vaping. So wow. it, it is something that really is becoming a public health issue. So you mentioned that the majority of people who have gotten sick or died were using tetrahydrocannabinol, THC, the active ingredient in marijuana. But there were, what, 13 or 15 percent of patients who, who died or got sick just vaped nicotine. So it doesn't all make sense, does it? No, it doesn't. And And we have to remember, really, what does vaping mean? And I think many people think that vaping what is being exhaled in that plume of smoke that, that we see so commonly uh, is not water vapor. So in, in order for something to be aerosolized and inhaled, you've, you've got some kind of product, and it's usually THC or nicotine, but then you need something to dilute that so that it creates a solution. And then you have the heating element, which is usually a heated coil powered by a battery that turns that solution into an aerosol that can then be inhaled. So even the coils might release underlying metals like manganese or zinc into that aerosol that can be toxic when inhaled. So we don't really know if this is coming from the heating elements. Is it coming from whatever solution is being put in there to turn the nicotine and THC into a solution to be aerosolized, for example, oils? There's all these flavorings now. So there's so many components to this that, it, that it's unlikely to be any one thing. So it's got to be something pretty toxic if it can actually damage to your lungs, damage your lungs to the extent that you die. So this, this is an excellent point. And this is, this is the major public health message. And for teenagers to be talking to your friends and not being, you know, not sucking on a vaping or an e-cigarette device that somebody from school hands you to suck on. Uh, in our pathology study, what we've found looking at lung tissue from lung biopsies of vaping-associated lung injury is this is a chemical or a caustic almost burn of the airways and the lungs. So this is definitely inhalation of some sort of toxic product that is going into the lung. It, it is not water vapor. It is not something that is benign. This is something that our pathologists have, have equated it to mustard gas exposure like in World War One. But you'd think it would hurt when you inhaled it. Yeah, this is uh, what we're seeing pathologically is, is really the airways don't have a lot of pain receptors in them. Mm. And, and so unlike thinking about a burn on your arm or your skin, for example, the airways and the lungs don't really have pain receptors pain receptors. That's on the oh, okay. outer part of the lung or the yeah. outer lining of the lung. Makes sense, I guess. Uh, as the mother of two teenagers, uh, I'm going to ask specifically about the new CDC guidelines that are for physicians, but also thus for parents. So yeah. what are they? So the, the, the recommendations currently are to not vape any products 
or use e-cigarettes, especially especially for teenagers, pregnant women, young adults. And one of the reasons in teenagers that is so critical, and it's not just THC, but it's nicotine as well, is that we know that teenagers' brains do not develop until about the age of 25, <laughs> and we know that even nicotine can harm parts of the brain that are related to attention, learning, mood, and impulse control. All huge issues in teenagers. And now with kind of the fruity and candy-like flavors and some of these devices looking really sleek and sexy, um, the teenagers need to know that this is harming your not only your brain, but it's contributing to potential nicotine dependence and also potentially something that is life-threatening because you have no idea what is in these products. Is smoking e-cigarettes safer than smoking cigarettes? So that's a, that's a really good question. E-cigarettes have really developed trying to help people get off of traditional cigarettes, which we know long-term have problems with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, emphysema, as well as lung cancer. E-cigarettes are probably safer than traditional cigarettes, but they definitely are not safe and they definitely still lead to nicotine dependence. And now with this Evali situation, I would say that no e-cigarette or vaping device is safe at this point. And isn't there also some concern that this uh, disease, Evali, now can be confused with the flu? We've got the flu season coming up, and the symptoms early on can be similar. Yes, and this is this is critical. I think it's going to be even more difficult as we go into the fall and, and early winter season Patients with EVALI will present with underlying cough, maybe some mild to even severe shortness of breath that is progressive. They can have fevers. And importantly, what we're really starting to realize, they can actually have non-pulmonary symptoms, meaning they, they can actually have nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. You might even be thinking of some sort of underlying food poisoning or something like that. But when they come into the hospital or the emergency department and they have a chest X-ray, the chest X-ray might be normal or abnormal. If they have lower oxygen saturation, the CAT scan of the chest will almost certainly show underlying abnormalities caused by e-cigarette or vaping-related use. So you've got to be on your toes to make sure that you don't miss this diagnosis because it is potentially treatable. Yes, we, we need to rule out infection, especially things like influenza and pneumonia. Um, and we need to make sure that we are getting an accurate history. Most providers are very, uh, both physicians and advanced practitioners are very uh, adept at asking about smoking use, less so about vaping use. So it is important to ask specifically about e-cigarette and vaping use because patients, if you just ask them about smoking, will say they don't smoke. So I think it is important that we start getting an accurate history and to include e-cigarette and vaping history ruling out infection, and then if there is that vaping history, to really have a high clinical suspicion and and really look into that a little further. might even lead to a lung biopsy. We do know in some patients, if they develop very severe illness, the ones that end up in the intensive care unit and even on a ventilator and who potentially die, those patients end up with a very diffuse form of lung injury. 
Wow. Scary. We've been talking with lung specialist Dr. Karen Swanson from the Mayo Clinic in Arizona. There is a vaping crisis in this country, at least 1,300 sickened and close to 30 deaths. The cause remains unknown, but vaping illness now has a new name as E-Valley. If you're using e-cigarettes or if you're vaping, the best thing to do is to stop, especially if the product contains THC. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Swanson. Thank you for having me. And that's our program for this week. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. Have a question about health and medicine for one of our Mayo Clinic experts? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We'll be answering your questions in upcoming programs. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a sub substitute for personal medical advice and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional for more information please go to our website newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know